Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Business Leadership Today podcast. I'm your host, Matt Tenney. As an active CEO, my goal is to build and sustain world-class organizations that make a positive impact on the lives of employees and on the global community. I have a lot of questions regarding how we can continuously get better and achieve our goals. And through this podcast, we reach out to top thought leaders to get answers to those questions, and we give you the opportunity to listen to their answers too. This episode is part of a series we're doing on how to build a workplace culture in which leaders and team members truly care about each other. My guest today is Ben Lichtenwalner. Ben is uh, the author of a critically acclaimed book called Paradigm Flip. He runs the innovative management consulting firm Radiant Forest, and he is the founder of a great blog that's a top 30 leadership blog called ModernServantLeader.com. In my view, Ben is one of the world's leading experts on servant leadership. In addition to practicing servant leadership for decades, Ben has also for a decade been studying great servant leaders, writing about servant leadership, and helping organizations develop servant leaders. I am excited to hear his thoughts today on how to apply the principles of servant leadership to create a culture in which people truly care about each other. Ben, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for having me. You know, it's a privilege and an honor to be with you and your audience. I've always enjoyed all of your great content and that you've done over the years on servant leadership and your other topics too. It's really, really great honor to be here. Appreciate oh, thank, it. Thanks, Ben. It's, it's my pleasure. I'm excited. To, I'm excited to have this conversation. So in a moment, Ben, I'm going to ask you to share your thoughts on the seven most important things that a leader needs to do to create a workplace culture in which people truly care about each other. Before we jump into that, though, would you kick us off by sharing the story of the team you worked with that was months behind on a multi-million dollar project and at risk of failing to complete it all together? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So um, the one you're talking about, I think, is the one of the e-commerce teams. So I do a lot of work with e-commerce and technology teams, especially because that's kind of where I began my career. And uh, it was a large organization, big e-commerce. They were relaunching the platform and... Uh, you know, one of the challenges they had was they were working with a large contracting company that was mostly overseas and outsourced. So it was different cultures. Not only did you have the challenges of sort of competing priorities of two different organizations, but you had very different cultures, different language barriers, um, different hours, you know, and this is very common in today's workplace, right? I'm, right. I'm sure you deal with a lot of clients in this space and it's it's become more and more common. And, and yet too often we treat other organizations or other people like with the assumptions that they grew up the same way we did, that they have the same belief systems, that they have the same value systems, that they have the same uh, technology skills, even for that matter. Right. And that was just a classic case here. So the two organizations uh, were really struggling to get along. And it fits perfectly with your topic because it really came down a lot to caring about each other. Mm. They had established sort of a, a traditional contractual relationship without building a partnership first. You know, it's that there had been a RFP and they kind of figure out, okay, you can do this for this many dollars and cents, and that means we're going to be great, right? We're going to get along great. No, right. <laughs> you got to, especially on these big projects, you know, too often we just overlook the value systems, the the soft side of it, we like to say, but it's the reality is if your teams don't get along, the project's going to fail. I'm right. sorry. Yeah. You know, it's just, you can't take a, a any sports team, whether it's a cricket team or a soccer team or an American football team. And just comprise of a bunch of people all agree on the numbers 
you know, they've got to be a team. They got to work as a team. And why? Yeah, why do we think that that's the case in business? I just I, it boggles my mind how often we see this. Right. And uh, I was I was fortunate to come in. So that that's really what we need to do to solve the problem. It wasn't about technology. It wasn't about how to make uh, two different platforms talk to each other. No, it's about how to make two different teams work together as one mm. team. And uh, we we address things like language barriers, not using certain phrases. Uh, often when you're dealing with people whose whose native language is different than your own, there's principles like speaking more slowly, listening longer, giving bigger pauses, just fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And uh, as the two organizations kind of became more aware of, of these common challenges and, and really understanding and caring for each other as one team, we were able to get it back on track before long. And uh, yeah, the project actually delivered on time. It was slightly over budget, I won't lie, but you know, when you're months <laughs> behind before you bring in an expert, it's going to happen, you know? <laughs> right. It's, uh, it's going to happen, but it but the project was a huge success in the end. And uh and in fact, those two teams are still working together today and uh, there was actually I'm honored to say there's actually some really great friendships that were built out of that. Like there's several that have, you know, starting sharing birthdays and a couple of people have come overseas and visited each other. Like it's just it's really great what's what's come from what was almost well, what was an adversarial relationship, really. Mm to the point of now becoming friends and, and to your topic, it, it came down to caring about each other as one team. So. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for that, Ben. Um, so I think that's a great, great segue into, into the, the ideas that you want to share today. Um, so what I'm going to do for you, the listener. So I'm going to ask Ben just to simply share in a word or a sentence, just the what he views are the seven most important things we need to be doing as leaders to create a culture in which people truly care. You don't need to write these down. Uh, we're going to have these as a list for you on the Business Leadership Today website at businessleadershiptoday.com. So you can access those at any time. Um, and then once Ben lists them, um, that's just to give you as much value upfront as possible. So you've got seven things that you know may- maybe one or two of them you just haven't thought about before, and it's something to start thinking about. And then we're going to go deep into a couple of these and, and get Ben's guidance on how to actually execute on these. Um, so Ben, if you could, why don't you go ahead and uh, just give us the list to start here. Um, just what your, in your view, the seven most important things a leader needs to do to create a culture in which people are truly caring about each other on a consistent basis. Sure. No, and again, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to take a, a sort of a short step back and just kind of explain where these came from first. So sure. I've, uh, you know, I, I've spent well over a decade studying the concept of leadership, you know, and I, I won't bore you with my backstory on why I got to that point. But, you know, most of us have all worked for a bad boss at some point. I'll just simply say, yeah, I, I got the king example, right? And I realized that I, while I knew they were not the greatest boss, I didn't know how I would define leadership. And so I found myself saying, okay, how do I define it? And I started studying it. And of course, there's, where do you begin, right? I mean, how many thousands and thousands <laughs> of books on leadership are there out there? Right. So, I, but I did, I just sort of dove in, I started picking the most popular ones, and I, and I got obsessed with it. And over time, um, I came across the topic of servant leadership. And when I heard that term, it was like a choir of angels saying to me, it was like, finally, somebody right. nailed the term about what leadership is, right? Yeah. And uh, so I got so excited, I, but I, I kept saying, so I've studied, you know, I've read dozens of traditional leadership books, some of the most contemporary ones. And I've studied a lot of leadership practitioners, you know, famous leaders in history and, and even contemporary leaders, business leaders and things. And what I found kind of shocked me, you know, there's, we, we mystify this topic. 
But at the end of the day, they all really said the same thing. Mm. Sure, some books emphasize some attributes of leadership, some emphasize others, some include certain pieces and some exclude others. Of course, they all use different terms. Right. But taken as a whole, when you look at what great leaders do, what great people leaders do, it's very similar and very consistent. Practicing it, incredibly difficult. Being a good leader, very hard. Understanding what makes good leadership, we don't have to make that difficult. <laughs> right. And so that's where I, I took the term servant again, because I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not serving others, you're self-serving, right? And that's not leading. So we put the term servant in front of leadership to, re to remind people that leadership is a commitment to serve others. It's not some great achievement you're looking to reach. You're not coming up to, you know, you're not trying to get that title just to be the, the king of the heap. You're committing to a service. You're committing to serving other people. And so since we use that term servant to remind us, I looked, I started with servant and worked backwards. What are all the hundreds of different attributes that these different authors use to define servant leadership or servant or grid leadership in general? And, uh, and so I used the term, the acronym of servant to try and remind us. And that's, that's the seven phrases you referred to. And they oh, are perfect. Like, so like that would make it even will... easy to remember. Exactly. Right. <laughs> And it's still seven, which I, I got to admit, every once in a while I stumble myself because seven's, you know, two or three, everybody's, you know, you know that, you know that two is the new three, right? Everybody wants to have three bullet points. I said, no, now you need two because of, we're so quick. But yeah, so, uh, so it's servant and it stands for selfless, empathetic, resolute, virtuous, authentic, nonpartisan, and thorough. So those are the seven core principles. Right. Each of those, of course, is supported by dozens of different attributes. You know, you, you can make this model as big as you want it to. Right. But if we remember those seven core principles and we practice them, you're, you're on, well on your way to being a great leader. I can see. Yeah, there's so many areas here. Where, like you said, I mean, just I'm looking at the first couple on the list. Those are books in and of themselves. <laughs> yes. In fact, yeah. um, I, I'd like to actually start with the first one that you mentioned, Selfless. Um, Absolutely. for a couple of reasons. And, uh, this is, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So, um, first just maybe you could describe in, in your view, why is it important for a leader to be selfless? Because I would imagine a lot of people think of leaders, you know, needing to be like these people with large egos, you know, and super confident people who can just take charge in any situation and being selfless sounds fairly opposite of that. <laughs> so, yeah. so first off, um, let's start with what do you mean by being selfless? And then we'll go into why it is important. But what, what do you mean that a, a leader needs to be selfless if they want to be effective and create an environment where people are caring about each other? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So, you know, I, I mentioned already to me, the starting point is at the end of the day, if you're serve, if you're not serving others, you're self-serving, right? So if you mm -hmm. look at the sort of the the black versus white definition of being selfless, you're either self serving as being selfless or you're being selfish, right? If you kind of polarize it, of course there's a gray mm -hmm. area there, but you can't lead other people and be focused on yourself primarily. So to me, it comes down at the end of the day of who are you serving first, right? And we'll get later in the principles. One of the principles when we get into being authentic, you have to be self-aware and there's some self care in that, you know, you're not excluding yourself. You're not letting, you know, you have to be, physically sound you have to be mentally sound like you have to take care of yourself too right but being you gotta put your mask on first right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly 
uh, putting the mask on. And it's, uh, but you need to serve others first. So who, who are you really prioritizing? Who are you really focusing on? Mm. And in a career, in a, in a work organization, if you're focusing on yourself first, I'll be honest with you, it's easy to climb the traditional corporate ladder, right? Oh, you yeah. can make results look good in the short term very easily, right? Mm-hmm. One of the phrases I, I say all the time is, you know, bad leaders steal from tomorrow to make today look good. Quarterly <laughs> results are a huge part of this problem, right? Right. It's real easy to make this quarterly. The, the rapid climber you see going up the organization every year rarely held accountable for the organization they leave behind. And that's part of the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. If you're being selfless and you're focusing on what the organization needs and what your team needs first, then you're really doing good for the organization and for the team. But you might not climb quite as quickly. It's a reality. You know, being a great leader means taking a little time to develop the team and the organization first. So that's where, where being selfless comes in. Got it. And, and so why, why do you think this is so important from a business standpoint? You know, I mean, I think clearly from the standpoint of if you just think about, you know, what is the real definition of a leader? Clearly, if you're just serving yourself, you're not, you're not really a leader, right? You're right. right. You're, you're a, um, what's the word? Uh, yeah, you're, you're just dominating people. Basically you're not, you're not pulling people with you. You're, you're pushing and you're, you're, you're using fear to get results. Um, but from a business standpoint, you know, how, how does this work? How would it, how is it that a, a selfless leader? And as you pointed out, maybe in the short term, they're not going to get the same results, but over the long term, how does this start to play out where you start to see better results over the long term as a result of being selfless? Right. Yeah. Good question. Uh, short term again, you know, I, I'll be honest, it's a little um, unpopular, but I, I like to look at Steve Jobs as an example here, right? Earlier in his career, he tended to be a lot more selfish in what he was trying to do. If you look at what he was doing, absolutely technology, he was a great leader throughout. He was a great technical leader throughout. As a people leader, his people leadership skills evolved as he got further in his career. You talk about up until the point he was fired from Apple and the initial thing, and you know, that was when he was denying his own child. And, And I don't mean to talk badly about a man who passed away not terribly long ago, but he did, he grew and he learned as a leader. And by right. later in his career, frankly, when he, even in his personal life, when he started being more accepting of people, and people who worked for him even later in his career still said he was, you know, drove incredibly hard and, you know, there were some difficult challenges there. But in the beginning of his career, it was short, it was more short-term focus. The old Apple II versus the Lisa and the Mac PC battle, right, was very much a, I've got what I want, what I think is right, and I'm going to tear this organization apart to prove it right? Mm. There was this huge challenge. And you look at what that caused to the organization. And frankly, that's a big part of why he was let go. Later in his career, frankly, when he achieved his greater successes, when he was brought back to Apple and the iPad, the iPod and the, you know, I mean, all the things that came up out of that later, not saying he was a perfect leader, not saying he was a terrible person. He, he had positives and negatives. But I think that's a great example if you look at what a same individual does when they are more selfish and what they can achieve when they are more selfless mm. over time and how that impacts the business as a result. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point here too about, um, you know, a lot of people I think might want to push back on this idea and say, well, look at, look at Apple, you know, that was run by somebody who was by, by many outside observers and, and people inside of Apple, I think viewed him as being rather self-centered a good portion of his career. Look at Amazon. You know, I think a lot of people look at um, Jeff Bezos and, 
again, he has positives and negatives, um, but I think people think of him as being a little bit more self-centered. Um, you know, so people, people might push back with this, right? These are two of the most profitable companies in history. Um, but they're, they're monopolies basically, right? So, so like, what what do you say to people who are, you know, using these as, um, as evidence that, you know, maybe you should be selfish, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't lead in a way that's uh, selfless. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, if you want to focus on pure profit as the only metric of success, they have a little bit of an argument. However, however, I also say, because I, I hear that argument all the time, yes, they are successful with individuals you may argue as being selfish at the helm. But imagine how much greater they would be if they were selfless, mm. if those leaders were more focused on giving back. And, and of course, the proponents of Amazon and the proponents of Apple will, will also highlight the dozens of charities they've served and the millions of dollars they've given away. And you know, even Microsoft, of course, Bill Gates got uh, huge flack for not giving away enough earlier in his career. And of course, now the Bill and Melinda Gates organization, you know, I mean, look at what they, the incredible work they're doing now. So the argument could be made the other way, too, that, you know, right. they built up this massive amount of money and now they can do so much more with it. I, I just tend to look at how much greater the organizations would be today if they were more selfless leaders at the helm. Hmm. Um, not to say that necessarily I agree with all those views of each of those executives. There's there's positives and negatives to both sides, but uh, like I said, Oracle's another example too. Larry, uh, I forget his last name, but you know the the CEO there has also taken se- se- severe criticism for being very selfish. Um, so yeah, I, I just I think of how much greater they could be if they were more selfless. Mm. Whenever they're highlighted as a selfish leader at the top. All right, so um, so let's say. I'm a leader who wants to do this. And I realize as we all are, you know, we have tendencies We're we're kind of naturally wired, especially when we're under pressure to, to be more self-centered, right? If we're, if we're, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for CEOs of publicly traded companies who are under tremendous pressure from institutional investors every quarter to be hitting numbers. Right. And it, yep. so, um, but, but let's say that despite that, so we recognize that we're, we're, we're human, we're flawed, you know, we're, 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 we tend to be selfish, especially when we're under pressure, but we want to get better. So w- what are some, what are a couple of actionable steps that I could take if I wanted to become less self-centered and, and more focused on what I can do to be of service to, to constituents, including team members and vendors, yeah. customers, so on and so forth. Good. It, 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 I'll start by saying whether it's the selfless principle or other principles, I'm often asked, you know, is it possible for somebody who's not really a servant leader? And of course it does kind of start with being selfless to become a servant leader. And that kind of becomes relevant to somebody who's selfish, trying to become more selfless too. Right. And what I usually find is it's great when an organization wants to step in and, or help a person develop their better leadership skills and try and convert that person. However, there are two types of situations I find in my experience. One is where the individual themselves recognizes that they need to be a better leader. And that is usually driven by some sort of shock, some sort of massive risk in their life. That could be caused by the chairman of the board saying, hey, 
if you don't fix yourself as a leader, you're right, out of here. Right. Um, it could be a very personal match health event. You know, it's often there are many examples of leaders who really changed after being diagnosed with cancer um, or other traumatic diseases. Um, but at the end of the day, there's usually some sort of shock that changes them. And again, the organization can drive that if they recognize the need. But it's not, you're not going to hand somebody a book and have them change overnight, no matter how good your book or my book is. <laughs> at the end of the day, it, it, the book isn't going to change them. They right. need some sort of motivation themselves to make that change. As far as specific steps to help once you've recognized that or the person is motivated to change, I think it frankly kind of leads in that naturally to the next principle, which is being empathetic. Mm. And it requires more listening. It requires more getting to know your team. There's a very specific exercise that I've done in some cases, and I've been the recipient of too, um, which it involves 360 feedback, which most of your listeners are probably familiar with or have done, but it puts another layer on it. And that is you, at the end of gathering all the 360 feedback, you usually have a um, administrator or a person sort of running the exercise and everybody gets in the room and everybody and the, the leader reads the feedback on themselves, particularly the negative. It really amplifies their understanding, their recognition and awareness for both the leader and the team they lead when they are reading the words aloud themselves in front of the people who shared them. Mm. And I'll be honest, it's a powerful moment and a lot of organizations don't have the stomach for it. But going back to that shock system or that environment, it is a very powerful and motivating moment when the leader is reading the negative feedback, the positive too. I don't want to sound like you only do the negative, but when somebody has been acting very selfishly or is perceived to have been acting very selfishly, and then they get this feedback and start reading it aloud and everybody hears them reading it. There's something about 360 feedbacks when a person provides that feedback and doesn't actually see the leader read it or hear it. We assume it goes into a black hole, right? Mm. And as a leader, we don't receive it as well when we do just read it. Oh, well, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. They don't understand the pressures I'm under. They don't, you know, we'll make excuses out the wazoo. But when we're sitting in front of that person, anonymously or not, we know they're in the room. It's, it's much more sustaining of a change when we do that. Hmm. And, and, you, and you see that because the... I guess it's for both people, right? Where the team members who shared the feedback feel heard because yes. they, they literally hear their words being read aloud. Yes. But yeah, I could see how, you know, the self-awareness is really the key here, right? Of uh, understanding, well, I, I may not even see myself as being self-centered in some ways. And you're getting that feedback. You're saying that kind of just provi often provides the shock in your experience where now somebody yes. has the motivation to go ahead and work to change. Right? Yes. Absolutely. And that, uh, since you brought it up, the self-awareness is an attribute under being authentic, way down on our list of seven principles. But exactly, self-awareness is key. Yes. Okay. So let, let's come back. Um, let's come back to empathy. So yeah. why, let's just start with what, what is your definition of being empathetic as a leader? Like, so what, what does empathy mean in your view? Yeah. We're all familiar with the phrase, walk a mile in somebody's shoes, right? You know, you have to really understand somebody you got to walk them out of shoes. I, I take that to another level. And I say the problem with that is, you know, if you, if I'm trying to empathize with you, Matt, and, and we're on the same team together, we're peers in, a, in an organization, 
you may feel compelled to not share the challenges in your life. You might just be sharing, you know, things are going, classic example, how you doing? Good, good, good. You know, we're not really looking to know how you're doing when we pass in the hallway and I'm expecting a two second response, right? It's rhetorical almost, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So being empathetic, don't walk a mile in their shoes, walk a mile in their muddy boots because the shoes mm. could be, you know, sandals on the beach, it could be a sunny day, you know, and that's typically the way we present ourselves, right? If I want to empathize with you, Matt, I'm going to try and really understand. Well, I know you have a, a second child born recently, right? Congratulations again on that. And, you know, I might be thinking, okay, what's the greatest challenge in Matt's life right now? Well, he's probably not getting a lot of sleep. You know, he's probably really tired. That, that 7 a.m. meeting I had with him yesterday probably wasn't the best idea. You know, I'm thinking <laughs> about the greatest challenges. Yes, there's joys in your life from that child, obviously. But to really empathize, we're going to hear about the positives naturally. We're going to hear about, we're going to get to know the great things going on much more readily and easily. If I want to empathize, i got to think hard and work hard at getting at what are the muddy boots you're wearing. So mm. empathize technically by definition means just getting to know the other person, getting to know the individual. But the challenge is getting to know what are the challenges that that person is facing? What are the difficulties that they're facing in their daily life? Okay, so... So if, if a leader is making the effort to do this, to really understand the, the challenges of team members, how do you see this as being um, a key element of building a team where people are caring about each other and they're driving results as a result of that, that mutual care? Great question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to know them to care about them, right? I mean, the, what's the uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote? Uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And so you express that care, frankly, through one-on-one -on -one time. You know, you're not going to... Empathizing includes in group meetings, leaving a little time for personal discussion. You know, what did you do over the weekend? You know, what's everybody's plans? I think there's a little bit of that. I'm also a big fan of being efficient, so I'm not trying to suggest that meetings, when you're taking everybody together, have to spend a half hour going through everything. But make sure you genuinely are interested in what people are doing and what's going on in their lives. When it comes to making sure people know that you care about them, Empathy tends to come from those one-on-one -on -one discussions, those one-on-one -on -one meetings. And this is another big challenge we have in corporate leadership today. We tend to give leaders, titled leaders, way too many direct reports. Hmm. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm a fan of flat organizations. I, I appreciate having that too many levels. But at the end of the day, if you have more than five direct reports, there's a problem. And here's where it comes down to. For each direct report you have, you should be investing at least about 10% of your time on serving that individual. What do they need to be successful? What, did, what challenges are they facing? What roadblocks do I need to get out of the way of them? What goals do they have? That's a big investment, 10% of your time each week. But we're not spending nearly that much time. Anybody watching this right now, I bet, <laughs> right. I'm betting is saying, damn, I'm lucky if I spend 2% of my time on an individual. You know? Right. Every time they come into my office, it's a, it's a disruption to what I'm trying to do in my daily job. But that's what we forget about, right? We promote individuals. We expect them to do the same individual tasks they've been doing all along and lead other people. And we don't give them the time to do it by taking away their daily routines or tasks, or we give them 20 direct reports, you know? Mm. Now, if you're not, if you're not spending 10% of your time, or if you are spending 10% of your time, then more than five, and you've got less than half your time left to do what, you know, your responsibilities are outside of leading those people. So, you know, can you do it with 10? Sure, as long as you're not actually delivering anything yourself. <laughs> right. It, it needs to be, and so by allowing sufficient time
for us to meet with individuals one-on-one is, is part of that 10%. To have a lunch with them once in a while, to have at least a weekly check-in on how things are going and understanding what roadblocks they have. That's your role as a leader. And if you, you think, well, I haven't got time for that, then you haven't got time to lead. You know, mm. that's, that's the reality of it, so. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really key insight. Just, you know, and I would imagine a, a lot of people haven't thought about what is the percentage of time that I should be spending really looking at how I can grow team members and remove obstacles for them and serve them. So I think that's a, yeah. some really, really fantastic things to think about. Yeah, um, and, and if you're one of those people listening to this now, you know, that's natural. Don't feel bad about it, right? I mean, right. That's, that's that's the environment we work in. That's the environment. That's the society we've built, right? But that's again where where the whole concept of servant leadership being a little shocking and and sounding a little contrary to norms. It's it's because society's gotten it wrong. You know, we we need to rethink this stuff. And and so, if you find yourself thinking that, just congratulations. That's great. You're starting to listen. You're starting to think about different ways you can improve your leadership. Don't be surprised that you that that's the way you view it because that's the way most of us have been trained to view it. Right. Thank thanks for that, Ben. Yeah. It's. Yeah. It's important for people to have a little bit of compassion for themselves, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I would like to touch on one more um, because this is interesting. And it's especially in today's world. Um, I'd like to go just a little bit into the idea of nonpartisan. So what do you mean that a leader needs to be nonpartisan? Let's start with that. You're right. Great question. Yeah. And this is one a lot of people like to talk about because we think of nonpartisan as politics. And it's and honestly, it's a great example, right? Being nonpartisan in college, mm. politics is a good example, but it's not only about politics. At the end of the day, being nonpartisan means that you're open to new ideas from anyone, anywhere, anytime, right? Mm. If, if somebody approaches us and we see, and I see, mean see virtually their title before we see them as an individual, we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failures as leaders, right? You need to recognize that the best ideas in many organizations have come from the very lowest person on a traditional hierarchy. Right. Um, you know, uh, Sam Walton was famous for saying, you know, again, and of course, Walmart's taken a lot of criticism more recently. You know, I, in the early days of Walmart stores, he was a big fan of, of the cashiers saying, you know, they were the front lines. They are the ones who know the customers better than any executive reporting to him. Right. And that's so true, right? But if you're a big CEO who's very selfish or, or not, if you're not being nonpartisan, if you're being very partisan, you're expecting the ideas to come filtering up the chain rather than once in a while strolling the floor of your store or your front lines and getting to know the individuals there and seeing what ideas they have. I, I, I think, you know, I'm also a huge fan of Max Dupree, who was the son of the founder of Herman Miller. Um, his book, Leadership as an Art, remains by far my, my second favorite book third favorite after the Bible and yours, Matt, of course, or any other books out there. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, the, you know, he, he would say, um, and of course I lost it, but you know, he was a big fan of making sure all oh, the, the janitor story, his story that he told was that a, a janitor is not the right person to make a decision on whether or not the company has a stock split. Right. Right. But at the same time, the CEO is not the right person to be choosing what mop the janitor uses. You know, you, right. you've got everybody has their domain of expertise at every level of the organization and, and at every department. Um, 
the Robert Greenleaf, of course, classic servant leadership. He's the guy who coined the term, and he's he used a Latin phrase. I think it was Paris, Paris into pars. I, I'm getting the Latin wrong, but it means first <laughs> among equals, and mm -hmm. I love that perception. That is what a leader should perceive them as. They may be the first among the equals for a particular topic, but if I'm sitting down in a room, you know, my background is mostly technology and people leadership. If I'm sitting down with a stockbroker who I'm paying, you know, for his services, or I'm, I'm trusting his advice, you know, just because right. I'm paying him doesn't mean that I make the decision or, you know, that I suddenly have more knowledge by any means. No, I, he's the expert, right? And so I'm, that's what we have to realize being nonpartisan is that anybody, anywhere, anytime can have a good idea that can drive us, the organization forward. And we have to be receptive to that. Um, so yeah, that, that's the key to, to being nonpartisan. All right. Well, thank you for that, Ben. And thanks. Thanks for this conversation. This is, uh, as always, you know, we've, we've spoken before. I always get a couple gems from our conversations. Um, uh, so I really appreciate your time. Thanks again for for uh, having this conversation with us, Ben. Thank you, Matt. It's been a real pleasure, honor. And to all your listeners and audience, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. All right. So if anyone would like to learn more about Ben and learn a little bit more about these principles, um, I highly encourage you, uh, you. You can go right to his website if you like, um, radiantforest.com or his blog, uh, modernservantleader.com. Also, feel free, we'll have show notes that kind of list out the seven um, ideas that he shared. Um, and go a little bit, some summaries of some of the things we talked about here, as well as a recording of the podcast. And you can find that at businessleadershiptoday.com. So until the next time, I wish you great success building and sustaining a team or an organization that is a world-class organization that's making a positive impact in the lives of your team members and on the global community. Bye for now. <laughs>